And that's Queen. Freddie Mercury. I really enjoyed watching uh, that, uh, the movie about Queen uh, a few years ago that it came out. And uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. And I will tell you what makes the world go around. is handicappers. Handicappers who are successful at what they do. That's what makes the world go around. And I've got one that's going to join us. His name is Roger Chettina. He's, he's arguably the top handicapper on the NHC tour. He's arguably been absolutely consistent in tournaments, including the NHC championship in Vegas. And I can't wait to get a, talk, to get a chance to, to go over some handicapping. And this is our handicapping series of handicapping angles today with Roger Chettina. Let's go to the phone lines and find Roger. And we have Roger. I'm going to pronounce this Roger in Italiano. Cettina. Yeah, you're very good. Uh, Roger Cettina. And uh, here in America, they pronounce it Cettina, correct? Correct. Um, by the way, I, we've been, you know, we've known each other a long time. We've been friends a long time. I want to say to you, congratulations on, uh, on your, uh, I, I guess it's going to be induction into the National Horse Players Championship Hall of Fame. Yeah, that was actually in February, so thank you. Yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty exciting. Yeah, now Roger, you've been playing, uh, you, you, let's, talk, let's tell people a little bit who you are. Um, you have that, I, I think, I don't know if I want to say the dubious distinction, but it's that you finished second twice in the National Horse Players Championship. Um, I believe yes. you were you were second to Michael Baychuk in 2012. No, 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 not that one. At, yeah, the year after uh, 2013 okay. and then 2016. And you have an amazing record with the NHC Tour and the Horse Players Championship and tournaments. I have a lot of guys like you that are on our site. Can you talk a little bit about, first of all, your love of handicapping, and two, what attracts you to tournaments? So I've been uh, like into tournaments probably 12, 15 years now. I, I just like the competition, you know, like playing against your peers, totally enjoy that part right and I just love handicapping I mean I can handicap for days and uh, never get tired of it so uh, the, the tournaments have been a great great addition and obviously when you're successful it's something that doesn't hurt right <laughs> that, that definitely helps but I, I think they've just been a great great addition uh, to, to, uh, to horse racing and I'm I'm pretty sure that it brought a lot of people into it, maybe that weren't into it before. Well, let me ask you on, on the differences before the tournaments and now the tournaments. How has it changed your handicapping? So, I would say really not that much because I've always been, I've always been a long shot player. I've never ever been one that wants to play favorites and like and pound short numbers. It's just not my gig. It never has been, never will be. So I think it was, it, it's easy for me to transition from one to the other because, you know, the reality is you don't win tournaments by grinding short prices. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, sometimes in the live ones, yeah, sometimes it does work. But, like, I, I would never bet, like, $500 to win on a horse that's, like, you know, two to one to win a tournament. I wouldn't do it. Like, what would I bet... 250 win in place on a 15 or 18 to one shot absolutely every day so that's really the difference when you say you want to bet a 15 to 18 one shots uh, you're looking for value um, I've always contended that value has to have some sort of um, uh, redeeming quality um, what do you look at and how do you use that quality of a horse and those odds to your favor. So the interesting thing with me is I've really always 
gravitate towards cheaper races, right? And we're going to go through an, an example of something that happened on May 9th at Gulfstream Park, right? So it happened to be a very good day for me because I qualified for the Breeders' Cup betting challenge and the NHC same day on that day. And I had a plan going in. And my plan was I needed to be in good position to the last race at Gulfstream Park because I absolutely love the horse named Are You Talking to Me in the last race at Gulfstream that day. So I was in good position, picked a few winners, had mostly seconds, had one good winner in Tampa. And now we get to the last race at Gulfstream and I'm just licking my chops. The funny thing is, is I keyed him in the pick six and I got knocked out the first leg. Keyed him in the pick five, got knocked out in the second, in that first leg. Wound up playing a pick four and hit that pretty good. So, interesting thing about the cheap horses is, like, they're really inconsistent, right? Like, they run big, they don't run big. But a lot of them, like, are instinctful, like they want to run a certain way, right? So, I remember, I've been betting this, uh, this horse owes me no money. He's just, you know, you get them horses, like, I remember back in November, uh, Gulfstream West had, like, a carryover and a pick five or something. And they came off the grass, and this horse was in. I'm looking at his dirt races, and he had one. I'm like, boy, I really like this horse. He made this sweeping move, and blew past him, six to one. And, like, I took a liking to him. Then he ran him on the grass. Then he ran him going six furlongs, and he broke terrible, didn't run a bit. Then he ran him on the grass again. Then back on March 1st, here he is again in a, in a race that's just full of speed. At Gulfstream, and I loved him that day, and bang, 26 to 1, he wins. Next time out, he goes a mile, same move. He comes, he's in, he goes outside, and makes a big run, gets second, and gets a runaway winner. So here he is April 19th now. The race before this, that all a lot of these horses come out of, and there's a big long shot on the lead going a mile and for whatever need Fuentes the jockey moved down the backstretch he gunned him down the backstretch and, and like went inside another horse and was dueling the whole turn and just moved way too early and he wound up getting a beat a length and three quarters by trapezoid so Trapezoid was one of the favorites in this race. And, you know, they see Trapezoid was five or six wide. Okay? You know what? He was out there by himself for part of it. So he might have some issues, too. You know, you got to think about those things, too. At the end of the day, from the 16th pole, he was right there. He got beat a length and three quarters by Trapezoid. So it comes into Saturday, and new jockey, and this kid, Joseph Trios, has shown that he probably has a future. I think he, I don't know what you think of him, but so far I like the way he rides. He, he actually can hand ride and whip at the same time, which a lot of them can't do. <laughs> That's true. And uh, it's so true. And it was a race that was packed with speed and, you know, they're betting a horse from parks. How many park shippers won at Gulfstream this meet? Uh, not many, if any. Right. Uh, they were, there was a lot of horses getting bad. And another Starship Apollo was another one. Like he drove for four a mile. This a huge difference between six furlongs or five and a half and a one turn mile. You know the speed horses going six. They hit the turn. And they're like, I got to run more. You know, so you know the rest of the story. Are you talking to me? Ran great. He won, and it was a good day. But that's kind of what I look for, you know what? Like, when horses instinctively run one way and they run well, when they're taken out of their element and they move too early or something, you got to pay attention to that stuff. And it takes time, right? It's like, it's not an easy thing to do. I don't think, you know, I'm not the type that I could say I could open up one day, open a racing form up and just be successful because I can't do it that way. Never have. I have to put time into it. I, I think that's a great point because I've always stated that history means a lot uh, when, to me when I'm looking at races. 
Uh, I'm most successful when I have history on a horse. And what I mean by history on a horse, it could be even just knowing enough about it, like you just mentioned about are you talking to me. You knew his, 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 his past performances. You understood. If I remember correctly, um, he had won at a mile, right, at a big price in March? Actually, actually six and a half. Uh, and then they stretched March. him out, right, to a mile. And then he ran, and then he ran second in a mile against the uh, he, he, runaway winner. Yeah, he didn't punch like he would at, at a at a at a six and a six and a half or a seven race, and then when they drop, I think they dropped them back down to six. Correct? No, they kept them at a mile. Did they? Okay, I just yeah, remember yeah, looking at that, and and I liked his his race. He has always been a horse that, to me, he was always a horse that caught my eye. I think originally Ralph Nix had him. Um, at one point when he was a young horse and he always, yeah, yeah, and he always showed a lot in the morning, but he was such a dyed in the wool kind of big, you know, long fused runner that at Gulfstream sometimes that doesn't work. Um, so it's, it's interesting. What you just described is a lot of the ways that I find I need to have information on a horse to be able to to come up with a, uh, a good idea, and it's really yielded some great prices down the road. Um, is that your favorite angle, is, is really narrowing down horses like that? Uh, I think so. I like to really... Actually, Ralph Nix did have him, because I got it open right now. Yeah, uh, big chestnut, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I like to... like To, to me, it's also like... It's a lot easier if you stay to a couple circuits and you're not all over the place, right? Because you, you can pick up things better, right? Yeah, I don't have time to handicap four or five tracks, so I try to stay to one or two. And even if I'm not playing them, if I'm at work, I try to watch the replays and try to keep notes on them. Uh, I, I think you pick up a lot when you, you come back and you, you see the past performances two weeks later and, like, Oh yeah, I remember this race last time. This horse did that. This did that. Just easier. Yeah, and I, I just like I said, I I really I like the cheaper racing. Like I'm, I think the last time, yeah, I I, I you get I get tired of the super trainers in, in the races. They're like, doesn't do anything for me because I'm always trying to beat them because that's just what I do. So, give give me the cheap horses all day. Um, what is, um, how do you, uh, how do you handle yourself when you have to handicap maidens? Okay, so, maidens, a lot, a lot of pedigree, right? Uh, definitely like to look at everybody in the post parade, like to see, you know, what they look like, if they're on their toes, this and that, uh. To me, the key to all maiden races, and, and I am a thoroughgraph user. Uh, I don't live and die by speed figures because I never would have bet, are you talking to me, if I did, right? That was probably one of the reasons why it was such a big price. But uh, to me, maidens, especially maiden claimers, the first thing I'll do before I look at anything is go through the fields that they came out of, right? And... Everything, obviously, is your own judgment, right? It's You look at it, but strength of fields they ran in. To me, with cheaper races and maiden races, especially cheaper maiden races, like, I want to see what the rest of the field look like. To me, that's like, the, the whole class angle, to me, is a big deal with, with, cheap, with cheaper races. Same thing with even maiden special weights. Like, you'll, you'll see races that are just jam-packed with talent and you have a horse that gets beat by 10 and the next time the field will be not as good it it moves them up it's a good point um sometimes from you know our end uh, when i watch horses and especially in the morning you kind of get an idea what they are and i don't go by speed figures in maiden races because I do believe that lone front runners get higher figures uh, because they ran freely on the on the front end, 
And I think a lot of people put too much stock in the figures in those kind of races. Oh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. That's what kind of got me away from, from buyer figures. It's just, to me, you know, the, these horses open up long leads and they're gone and they get these big numbers and they're just, and, and all, all speed figures can have, you know, can have some of the same thing. It, it's definitely like, and you watch replays, I watch a lot of replays too. And in maiden races, and you can see, if you really watch, you can see horses that needed a race, that, you know, they're a little green, that they're going to improve. You know, and then sometimes you get the, I love it when you get these cheap maidens, and, like, the horses that are over 25 are, like, two to one. Like, really? Like, you really think they're going to get any better? And, (laughs) And this time of year, like, now that you're getting into the spring, you're running three and up. And the older horses, like in Florida, are carrying like eight pounds more, and they've shown what they can do. And they've we're adding them. weight and, to them. And we're adding weight to them. Yeah, I know. I've I've got a filly that ran in the slot the other day, Noble Maria, who Chuck trained. Now Susan's got her, and like she ran really good off the layoff, but she's carrying like eight more pounds than the three-year-olds. So actually, trios rode her last time. Hopefully, a rider again. But, like, the three-year-olds can get better. Like, now's the time for them to start getting better. Like, when they're four and a half, like, they've shown what they got already. They've totally shown it. Like, you know better than I do, right? Like, well, once you hit that eight, you're not going to get any better. Can you win? Yeah, but not at a short price. You would have had to have shown some sort of brilliance at one point or another in your life. And if you haven't, and you're still stuck at that level, it's like non-winners of two. How many non-winners of two did they jam down our throats? Um, oh, tons of them. And, and some horsemen run non-winners of two against open claimers. And sometimes I'll see a non-winners of two at two to one in an open claiming race. And I'm like, there's a bunch of multiple winners in there. They're, it just they don't fit class-wise. A lot of times people don't pay attention to those things. No, they don't. And, like, those are perfect examples. And then you'll have those guys that'll run them in open, then drop them back into a non-winner to life, right? And then their form is totally muddy because they just got their ass kicked against multiple winners. But those are the things you got to look for. They could even, you know, one of my favorite moves that I've seen is to say a horse runs for 8,000 or 10,000 open claimers against some really hard-knocking horses, right? They'll step up to 12, 5, or 16 non-winners of two. That's a huge drop in class. Yeah, tremendous drop. And you hear, why is he stepping up in class? I'll give you the greatest example on that. was a horse named Blue Buff. Blue Buff, as a three-year-old, I sat with John Service when he got the horse from Joe Horsino. He had just broken his, uh, he had just gotten him over. He was an unbridled song as a three-year-old. And as a two-year-old, he was as fast as anyone uh, that they've ever, they had ever had in, in, in their barn. They loved that horse, Blue Buff. And he just had issues. He didn't show up until he was three. And there was a lot of people following that horse. And he breaks his maiden first time out. And I'm with John, and I watch him work one day on a bad track. And he ends up pulling a tendon. He doesn't show up for, for a year and a half. Has some turf races and bad form. John ran him in a non-winners of two, 12, uh, I think 25 at Gulfstream. And he airs. Next time out, he puts him in a starter allowance. I know who that horse is. That horse is a monster. He should have been a stake source. He's led off at 5-1 to one or 4-1, to one, something like that. And the yeah, fun- four to one. And the funniest thing was through the post parade... You know, one of the race analysts on TVG says he comes out of a non-winner's two. He's a throwout. Can't compete with these. And I just about, I think I was eating lunch. I almost dropped my, uh, my mozzarella sandwich, you know, because he had no clue what he was dealing with, that horse. And, and that's the difference between cash and a bet at a price. Uh, that, that something like that, that's not readily noticeable for some. Yeah, I, I, I hit the pick five pretty good that day. It paid, I'm looking at it now, $870 with 
no real prices before that, just because of what you wrote. And and that was in, and those the line was a hell of a lot higher. Yeah, yeah, I think was. Yeah, I remember. I think I said he'll never be eight to one or something like that. Yeah. But exactly. those are the kind of horses that escape the general public, and that's what you're Without describing right there. Without a doubt. What other angle? When so now we've looked at non-winners of two maidens. When you're looking at a good allowance horses or stakes horses, how do you separate them? It's really hard. Uh, I, I really look at what, again, class, right? Who do they run against, right? I'm like, every, every time a horse wins a maiden or wins an A other than or two other than steps up again, I want to see the fields that they ran previously and that they beat, right? And then do a comparison in my own mind. All right, so this is what he beat last time. How much tougher is this field? Most cases, when they step up, it gets a lot harder, right? But I love betting against those horses that just go wire to wire or get these dream trips, especially on the grass, because grass racing, uh, trips are almost everything. And horses that get dream trips on grass, and now they're stepping up in company, and their favorites are like perfect horses to throw out, in my mind. I'm I'm a lot about the class. And what's the competition? If you could put a five claimer and an allowance horse and they can run by themselves and run six furlongs in 109, right? It doesn't mean that when they, if they run against each other, they might both suck if they might pull, knock themselves out. But or, when, when horses got easy trips, they run better. It's just, there, there's just, there's no formula, right? There, there's no magic wand, like, that, that picks winners. There's, there's a lot of variables. When you look at video and uh, videos and replays, what are you looking for? A- in a general sense. We know what so everybody general, else is looking for. Yeah, so in, 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 in a general sense, like, you know, a lot of stuff that I've listened to you about, about the ears, like I always pay attention to that, right? What the ears are doing on the horse. But I like to look at trips and like, the biggest thing I like to look for is the worst thing that these jocks do these days is they don't let horses run. It's like, it's somewhat embarrassing how bad they strangle horses early, right? And I've never been on a horse, never claimed to be, but I can't think that taking a hold of them and having them fight for a half a mile is a good thing. Just, Just don't see it. So I really look for that and, and and intent too. Sometimes, like you know, they just go around and there's not much, uh, not much effort, for lack of a better term. You know, the one thing that that I want to share with with you and people out there, I have learned to make notes on horses that broke slow stumbled, didn't get out of the gate. I try to give them, and I, I try to, to categorize them. Uh, for example, there's some horses that no matter what you do, they'll always lack that first step out of the gate. But their second right. step is very strong. And I call that the power step, when they can get out of the gate and be right in full flight. Some horses just can't. And... One thing that I try to do is I try to note those horses that don't have that power step. Why? Because number one, if they don't have that power step and they draw inside with the speed on the outside on a track that doesn't really play to the inside, they're going to get shuffled back. Right. And I've cashed pick fours on just on beat, trying to beat favorites like that. But also by categorizing the, the ones that do have power steps, that are quick. You can sit there and when they don't break, instead of coming back next time out and saying, oh, well, this horse didn't break, he's going to be better. I kind of penalize them for it because they weren't sharp. And, and for example, Dennis's moment when he stumbled at the start in the Breeders' Cup, that was a total uh, uh, result of him being 
flat as a board two days before the Breeders' Cup. He galloped awful. Couldn't get himself out. You know, he, he just couldn't even finish his gallops. And I see that as a function of your current form. So when he stumbled at the start, that wasn't a surprise to me. So I look at those things. Is there a specific couple of things you look for without giving all your secrets away, of course, Roger, that you can pass on to novices or the, to, to, to weekend warriors out there that they can look at and say, Roger taught me that one? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we kind of went over, like, you know, a bunch, bunch of stuff. It's kind of... Uh, I think you just got to, like... I think you just got to spend the time, right, and, and just and just learn. Uh, the whole class angle to me is like you know a big thing, right? I don't know. There's really nothing. I mean, that's basically you know what I do. Over the past twenty years, we've had certain frontiers in handicapping have been um, exposed. Uh, for example, first of all, you'd have to say uh, video replays. Everybody can get them now. I remember right. years ago, 20 years ago, you really had to go fishing. You had to be at the track to get them. Uh, workouts have become exposed where a lot of people can see workouts. Um, what's the last frontier in handicapping? That is yet to be exposed out there. That's that's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. That is a really good question. I mean, what else could actually? What else you you mentioned it already. You mentioned it. You're already doing it. Looking at horses, looking at horses' ears, looking how they move, looking at, no. at the way they physically move and act. Because we've already enacted, the, 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 everybody uses figures. Nobody knows how to put them together. They do, you know, people throw figures out there, and they have no idea how those figures came about. Um, and, and that's one of the issues. Um, and figures are, how, uh, do we have any new? Uh, I mean, I developed my Delta figures three years ago. But there's no, all the old figures, the Thurgrass, the Ragazins, the Byers, they're all old. They're all 20, 25, 30 years old. Oh, yeah, they are. They are. I, I like the, yeah, I, I like the thoroughbred better because it gives you, uh, it gives you trainer stats that, uh, that are more long-term than I'll get on Formulator. And also, it gives you really good uh, siblings on, on what the siblings excel at, you know. So... You, you got a horse, you know, that has three siblings, right, that's trying to grasp for the first time, say. And you'll see at 0 for 3, right? Three siblings tried to grasp. No, nobody was any good. But they give you the siblings' names, and they give you what figures they ran on the turf. And a lot of times you'll see, like, you know what? All right, the horse needs to win and run a 10 or 11 in here to win. And his siblings ran that fast, but they didn't win. So, you know, it's just another tool. Like, the, the only thing that, like you said, is looking at them is the only thing that you could say that not everybody can do or does do. Because they can't. And it's not like even if you wanted to sell your, I mean, you have your opinions in your sheet and I, I, the product's great. But it's not like at eight minutes to post, you could be tweeting, this horse looks great, bet him. You know, it's never going to work that way. So, Yeah, and, 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 and unfortunately, you know, there, we, when, when we handicap, and I know you do it the day before, the night before. I know you pour over yeah. your, your past performances. Uh, what do you use for past performances, by the way? I, I use Formulator. I use DRF Formulator. That's I, I like it because I could put my notes into it, which makes it very good. So when the horses come back up, my notes are there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and and that's, that's a great point because when I went to build Racing with Bruno, I built it with that mentality 
built in uh, that I wanted the, the ability. And I'll tell you where it goes back to. Um, and this is the next question I was going to ask you. It goes back to the books that I originally read when I first started getting into the game. Um, what books have you read? What would you recommend to new handicappers to become a better handicapper? What do they need to read? So I read your workout book, which uh, I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, it's, it's pretty old, that book now, right? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's 2005, yes, 15 years 2005. ago. 2005, I think I got it off uh, uh, Amazon or eBay or something. I read that, uh, and I read a few tournament, tournament books uh, that Peter Fornital wrote, because I was actually in one. Uh, I really didn't read any other books in that. Like, uh, you know what, I'm steadfast in my ways the way I do it. I've been doing it the same way for a long time. In the last eight or ten years, I've done a lot more, probably because I had more funds available to do it. And uh, I've been very successful in the last eight or ten years, too. So that that always helps. And uh, I have my process, and I just do it. I'm like, there's so much stuff out there. Like, you can just get swamped. Mm -hmm. Swamped with information. Just like between optics and this thing and that thing. And it's just like, it, it can blow your brain up. Like, you know? Well, the, so. the, the, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, you and I are very much on a parallel uh, uh, course because, uh, first of all, we're about the same age. But also, I'm very much on my own. I want to generate my own information, as you do. And I read what, what really made, and this is for people out there that are looking for books, uh, I read Handicapping in the Information Age from James Quinn in the 1980s which kind of outlined, this is 1984, I read it. It outlined how to use computers to help yourself handicap. And it wasn't computer really? programs, but it was how to generate your own information by having smart uh, uh, computer uh, technology to help you separate all the factors you want. For example, how to separate your jockey stats or your jockeys and your trainers and, and, and how, to, how to be able to amass information that you can easily uh, access. That's what I was into. I never was into, hey, let me just get information on how to by steps one, two, three. That doesn't work because it might work yeah. for you. It doesn't work for me. I have a different total mindset than you, Roger. And Roger, you have a total mindset than I do. But we might even come to the same conclusion. Um, yes. I read uh, the Handicapper's Condition Book to understand conditions. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the latest books that I really liked was um, Barry Meadows' um, The Skeptical Handicapper. Which uh, I, I actually, yeah, I actually have that and I just started reading it. So. That's fantastic. You'll love it because it basically backs up a lot of the opinions you have. I always believed, and I've always written this, that being stabled at the host track during a live meet is not, is not statistically an advantage. But every time you turn around, you hear, oh, you know, this horse, you know, he's, he's at the home track. He's get to go over. The, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, in the statistics show that it didn't. Yeah. And... When you, what do you think of, of how do you use the, 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 uh, the shippers coming into a track? Let's say a Gulfstream. Do you learn that particular circuit and look at what works there? Or do you have a steadfast rule with it? Uh, so, yeah, when the, when the shippers come in, it, like, it really all depends on where they're coming from, right? Like, perfect example was like, any horse that came down from parks after they shut down like two months later and showed up at Gulfstream, I'm just, I'm letting them beat me, right? They're like, there's just no way I'm using any of them. Just, just not doing it, right? The fairgrounds horses came over. It, it's, it's really tough, uh, you know, to, to make them have a work over the track. Like, let me put it to you this way. It won't, if they're not stable there, 
if they come in and they're a short price, I'm going to throw them as far as I can, right? If they come in and I like them and they're a big price, I'm going to use them regardless. So it all comes back to the value. I mean, I caught, I caught a, a, a couple horses at Tampa this winter that came off farms that were trainer changes. And, like, you, you don't know what's going on in these farms. <laughs> no, you don't. You, you, you have no idea. Like, you know, like, there's no clouds, there's no rules, right? So, it, this one day it happened, I don't even remember that horse's name, but, like, it was coming from the, it was previously trained by the guy that got locked up for money money laundering, uh, Lachoa or something. It was a different guy, and it was a cheap 8,000 non-winners of two race or something like that. The horse was coming off the farm, and Camacho rode, and this horse came on the track, and boy, she looked like a million dollars. She won by about 10 lengths at 27 to 1. So that's a perfect thing. Like, you know, throw throw the Steve Figures, throw the shit in the garbage when it comes to that. What do you do with the morning line? So I think the morning lines are pretty bad, personally, right? Uh... What I do is sometimes I kind of I look at them and I'm like, and I make adjustments myself if I don't agree with them, which is pretty often. But what I do do is I always do look at where the money goes because I'm pretty sure that a lot of these stables bet, right? Like there's no mystery here, right? No. To me, it's not even that important that horses take a lot of money. It's the ones that should and don't is what I gravitate to, right? When a horse is three to one morning line and it looks like a favorite and he's dead on the board, that's all I need to get rid of him because what notoriously happens is that they'll drift down late. And to me, that's the disadvantage that all these computer guys got because, right, whatever algorithms they're using, like a horse is five or six to one and he should be seven to two or three to one, that's not a good sign, but they'll hammer them down late and go for it. So, I might be wrong about that, but that's just my own opinion. Well, I, I believe those those computer guys. It's all about hedging because all they want to do is is break even. Yeah, and absolutely. so if you got a a horse that is listed at two to one, I think, and he's sitting at nine to two, they've got to figure out how much to bet on that nine to two horse so they can break even if that horse wins. If so, you go and, yeah, go ahead. And, and, and that's just my point. That's all my point is, is that it's all about what they have to bet into the pool to break even on that race. Right. I mean, if you really, if you look, right, how many, like, I would never spend the time to do this, but how many horses have had a two-to-one morning line that have gone off higher than that and won? I bet you the percentage is really low. Right, right. Really low. What's the answer with the morning line? I know there's some bad morning lines. I, I'll tell you, I, I'm a big Family Guy um, fan with Peter Griffith when he goes on to what grinds my gears. And the one thing that grinds my gears is when I get guy, you know, there's a 20 to 1 horse. And I know damn well that horse is going to be 5 to 1. And he's going to open up, open up at 5 to 1. And now everybody's looking at it and saying, oh, somebody knows something. Yeah, they know that that horse is not a 20-to-1 morning line, you know. But everybody's, oh, they're betting that horse down. No, they didn't. They bet him to where he was supposed to be. Exactly. I don't know what the answer to that is. I know it's a thankless job making a morning line. Like, you know, I wouldn't want to do it. I I wouldn't want that to be my job. I I don't know what the answer is. That's just... I, I think, you know what, I look at it in my own eyes, and just like you just said, well, like, if anything, if the tw- if he's 20 to 1 morning lining, you think the horse is going to be a lot shorter than that, right? It's good for players like us, because that's when I'm keying that horse in a pick three or a daily double or a pick four, knowing that the average player is going to look at the morning line and say, well, this horse ain't winning next one, right? How many times do you play a daily double and you think it should be paying 25 or 30 and there it is paying 60 sometimes it's a morning line too Mm -hmm. oh absolutely i've been around a lot of good morning line guys 
And the one thing that I found, the morning line guys that I respected the most, that I they did a really good job, was two guys in California, Jeff Tufts and Russ Hudak. And those two gentlemen also clocked in the morning. Jeff Tufts used to sit up in the clocker stand and clock all the gates because he knew the gates would actually would actually be a determination of what that horse was going to be as a first-time starter showing up on the board. Uh, Gateworks show up on the board. And if you got a horse oh, that has a 15, a, a horse that works 59 flat, and that works 59 flat, and he's sitting at 15, 20 to 1, that horse will get hammered. And that's because Gateworks are what makes a maiden. And, you know, it, sometimes I see these horses. There was a horse one time at Saratoga. Had an 11 and 2 out of the gate at Saratoga, which you never hear. And he was 20 to 1 on the morning line. He opened up at 3 to 2. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't have that. I mean, you can't make a horse that has an 11 and 2 out of the gate 20 to 1 on the morning line. It's not realistic. Um, Definitely not. So uh, when you do approach the morning line, do you make your own at all to try to have an idea? No, I, I, I've never actually made my own, but I've actually... Like, I'll go and handicap the race and look at the morning line, and I'll make adjustments. When you say adjustments, explain that. So, if I look at a 12, right? If, if I look at a 12-horse field, right? So, and I'm going to narrow it down to four or five, right? I'll write next to them. All right, what would good odds be? I got five out of the 12. The other seven, no good. I don't like them at all, right? So what what odds am I looking for on the other five that makes me want to bet them, right? A perfect example is, are you talking to me? Because I thought at 12 to 15 to 1, he would have been a good bet, and he went off 27 to 1. So I'll write, you know, I'll write next to it, and these are good odds, and then I'll see what the odds are, and you can compare them. How do you deal with jockeys? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I'll tell you. Loaded question. To me, like... You know I've been sitting on that one. You know that, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I, 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 definitely, I definitely have my issues with jockeys. You know, the funny thing about jockeys, they just some guys just get so overbet. Like it's just ridiculous how overbet some guys get. Some guys are just better at some things than they are other things. You know, I jockey changes like I do pay attention to them. Right. A, a perfect example was like, and, and to me, I like the journeyman guys. Like. Uh, like to bet them better, like at Gulfstream, like the guys like Jaramillo, right? I think he's really good because he lets the horses run, right? You don't see him taking the stranglehold of them very often. Unless they're playing games. Unless they're playing games. I do look for changes, right? You know, some guys are better out of the gate, some aren't. Uh, some guys are just horrendous, that they can't do two things. They can't whip and, and handwrite at the same time. So, some guys are just awful. I don't want to mention any names. I do think that Kid Joseph Trios has got a future. But a perfect example of jockeys getting overbet was Sunday. You know, they came off the grass there at Gulfstream. And in the 10th race, that helping Lisa D, who I was going to get a shot on the grass, but had beaten Pletcher's horse last time, going a mile. They ran against each other. On April 12th, or whenever it was, uh, March 5th. She's sitting there at 6, 7, and 1, and he's even money. And they're on the dirt. That's a very good... That's sometimes, and I don't like sloppy racetracks, but that was a really good opportunity to get four and a half, five to 1. 
And if you take the jockeys and you put Ortiz on Lisa D and you put Victor LeBron on Guacamole, I guarantee you the odds are probably the same. Well, I, I, I can tell you I did not like guacamole, guacamole at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just a pleasure. I do like guacamole on, on, my, on, my, uh, on my Mexican food. Please, yeah, that, I'm on for that. But uh, not, I'm not a, a – some of these horses that Pletcher has, these cheap horses, they get overbet because people see those percentages. Um, and I think racing has done a really poor job of separating those percentages. Like, for example, with two-year-olds. I want to know what a, what a trainer has done with two-year-olds. Not every first-time starter he's ever put out. Because that, that it's a different time of the season. I guarantee you, Wesley Ward has a different percentage with two-year-olds in the first three months of the two-year-old season than he does the rest of the year. Oh and, yeah, absolutely. And and I think again, here's another situation where players are just want to throw out those stats at you, or they want to throw out the ROI. Well, the ROI number one is for every single if you bet on every single horse they ran. And you don't yeah. do that. We don't do that. Definitely not. When you look at statistics, what are you looking for? Uh, trainer statistics, jockey, what do you... Uh... Let's go with trainers. So, that's a really good question. Let me think about how I need to answer that. I'm using uh, all my good questions on you today. Yeah, you're doing all right. Uh, obviously, grass race, you want to see a trainer, right? That can win a grass race, right? And I'll give you an example. If you're betting New York, there's a guy that for some reason wins at a good percentage, Gary Gullo, right? Does real well with dirt sprinters. Look at his percentage on the grass. It's oh, he hates it. I know Gary really yeah. well. He hates okay. it. It's hates it. And yeah. I mean, I see sometimes, like, he'll be have a grass horse, and, like, the horse will be getting bet. I'm like, this guy just ain't going to win. Yeah. But, but it's that mentality. He has that. He, he knows that. He's like, I, I, don't, I, I can't do it on the turf. So he goes in with a, that, that mentality of, I'm not good at it. You know? Um, sure. I mean, you know, that's an example. But I like to see, like, Trainers would sprint, right? Trainers, would, their percentage would sprint or routes, first-time routes. I mean, a lot of them have glaring numbers doing one thing or the next, right? But not both, obviously. So, uh, you, you really, you kind of dig down a little deep. It's not a global thing that a guy wins 20%. Uh, it doesn't work that way, right? Right, right. It, it just doesn't work that way. You, you ever come across where you're looking at your PPs, your past performances, and you look at a horse that, and, and by the way, have you noticed how certain horses, no matter what they do, they get, at the, uh, they, they get everybody's all over them? No matter what they do. Yeah. Some horses just notoriously get bet, over bet all the time. For some reason, fan favorite. It's got to do with with the with the connections. Yeah, fan favorite. They love betting Chad Brown and and Pletcher. I like. Uh, I I never bet you. The last number I caught, and it was because of you, was in January at Gulfstream. I think Chad Brown had two first time starters and a maiden special weight on the grass. And you liked one more than the other, who happened to be a longer price, I think. And I never use either one of them in the, in the pick five. I never do. I'm just like, you know what? They're always over bad, no thanks. And I happened to use Brian, and he won it like nine to one. And it was a very generous $15,000 pick five. It was a good number. But they, people just over, they, they over bet horses like crazy. It's just amazing. And you got to be able to figure that out. And take advantage of it. Like Guacamole was just an atrocious favorite Sunday. Just atrocious. Ran like sour cream. Anyway, yeah, just a exactly. joke. Just a joke. Uh, the one thing that I do find interesting is this whole game is about paramutual betting. But yet people go on tips that everybody else has. 
Is that like the like the typical oxymoron handicapping statement? It's paramutual betting, but you're going off on a tip from that's been going around. Everybody has gotten that that tip. Yeah, oh, that totally is an oxymoron. Like you, you know, you know, Betty, you can't believe what people tell you. Like people are always looking. Everybody's looking to cash a bet, right? Like, if there's a huge tip out there and everybody knows it, like, there goes the price. I, I don't pay attention to what anybody tells me. Not with anything. With work. With horses. Do you believe... You know, I pay attention to. Do you, <laughs> do you believe in the... I, I, I love the oldest stupidest argument ever devised in the world of horse racing when people say if you were so good why are you selling your stuff oh that guy was unbelievably a bonehead the other day oh Oh, well you know I gave him the opportunity I gave him the opportunity to ask his questions what you know he does what people that say those things don't realize is that and 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 it's really hard for me to say this cuz when 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 people play i want them to win but you could you could lead a a horse player to the window with the winner and he won't bet it or if he does bet it he'll screw up his bet because he has a preconceived notion of what he has to do. And one thing I learned a long time ago is that you give the information and you let them decide on their own. It's like anything else. Right? Oh, it's like anything yeah. else. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I like, love that argument. Thank you for saying that, you know. Okay, you're going to do all this work, right? And again, it's still your opinion, right? And are you going to be wrong more than you're right? Fuck yeah, of course you're going to be wrong more than you're right. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. So, so, you, so you sell your product to make a living, right? To make a few dollars so you can own some horses, so you can do this, so you can do that, right? I love doing it. I love, I love workouts. I love watching horses train. I love coming up. The other day, we had that horse in the last race at Churchill on Sunday, and we got a horrible beat. But hey, you know what? I was in a position to win. That's what made it excitement. Exciting. Exactly. And to think that if you didn't sell your product, that to think that the odds are going to be that much different, like how fucking stupid can you be? (laughs) I agree. Like, really? Like, okay. That's arrogance, isn't it? Isn't that... I couldn't, like, he just wouldn't give up at the end, too. It was just like, I'm like, I was like, Bruno, when are you just going to hang up on this guy, man? Well, you know, I gave him the opportunity, but I'll tell you the one thing that was funny. He went around and got sympathy from all his buddies that I didn't give him enough time to talk about and say anything. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah, Oh, yeah. Those Canadians. Okay. So you give the horse out, and instead of him being... Five to one. Instead of him being five to one, maybe he would be seven to one. Well, so be it. Like, listen, I, I, I don't know how much you bet, but it's not like you're betting millions of dollars, right? I've not seen any correlation where my information has affected the price. I, I mean, I haven't seen you. You've given out some horses that have been some big, big prices that, like, they're still big. So yeah, it, but the yeah, one I, know, I just. Uh, now, I, and you've hinted to this fact that you do use Racing with Bruno along with the other information that you use and obviously your own blend of it. For somebody that picks up selections or workouts, do you have any advice for them on how to use it? So, as far as workouts go? Sure, let's go with workouts. Yeah, so, like when I read your stuff, right, like, uh, I like reading the comments the best, right? So that when you physically see it and you've got like, you know, you jot down your little notes and like finish well, did this, did that. Like 
if people are going to do it, don't just look at, oh, this four-star work. you got to learn, right? And how do you learn is by reading, right? By absorbing the information. By that, that, that's, how you, that's how you learn, right? Like, when you see bullet works, bullet works are bullshit a lot of the time, right? But you won't know that unless you listen to, like, your podcast and stuff and you explain, you know, they went from the quarter pole and they went, you know, and, and how they do it. Like, you know, a lot of trainers, they train past the wire and eat past the wire. It, it all makes, you know, different. And, and and all the stuff that you had at Saratoga last summer with people playing games. But you got to read, you know, what the star or B plus or B is great, but you got to read what it's saying, right? Because that's where the information is. And you're the right. Information people information is reading. And people don't read nowadays. They skim and they look for ratings. And I keep oh, telling yeah. you, know, and, 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 and a lot of the times, people don't understand that we've taken our workout rankings, to, we've taken the workout rankings to a different level. Well, we actually tear up, tear up the, the work tab to try to give you a better idea of instead of three for 32, oh yeah, that's a bullet work on our, on our site. So, and, and, right. and sometimes it's really hard to get people out of that mentality of everything they've been, that, that, that they're exposed to. For example, you know, with the bullet works, I keep trying to tell people, don't follow bullet works because, like, for example, in New York, the bullet works are BS. They're bullshit. They're, yeah. they're manufactured and manipulated by the clockers who think they're sitting on the Hope Diamond out there. The funniest story was a couple of years ago when I bought a new truck off a of score, right? I'm sitting there and Eric Gio walks up to me. And you know Eric. And he says to me, he goes, how'd you get that truck? That's an expensive truck. And I told him. So I'm sitting up on the main track at Saratoga and I hear Eric below with his loud voice talking to the clockers. And he says, what are you guys doing up there? Bruno's doing circles around you guys. And I'm like, oh, God, no, Eric, no, please, no, no, don't please. do this. Don't, you know. No, and and, and he, 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 goes, he goes, what do you guys drive? The guy drives a $60,000 truck. What do you drive, Pintos? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I am mortified because I'm like, oh, God, they think probably I put him up to it. But that's Eric being oh. Eric. He's been, yeah. you know, and that's what Eric's funny, but he was making a point, you know, because he was always, he would always have the good horse and his team flipped backwards and the bad horse was getting a better time. It's ridiculous. But you get people on TV all the time saying, oh, this horse has a bullet work since the last. Hey, that's the last thing I want to see, you know? Uh, you own you own horses, but, but um, I, I... I appreciate tournament players like you. Brian Harity is another gentleman that subscribes. I've got um, uh, Michael Baychuk because you guys look at it, dissect it, and use it. Each one of you uses it differently. And that's what, and, and you're successful at what you do because you're able to use it to your strengths, where a lot of people use it to their weaknesses. And that's one key of handicapping. What is, so leading into that, as we go in the last minute, what is your strength as a handicapper? What is my strength? I think the strength is is that I put the time in, and like, and I think I find those. Uh, I think I find those clouded horses, right? The muddied up ones, you know, the big prices, right? I think I've never. I'm always playing the long shots, right? And, like, I think I just, my strength is that I interpret it my own way and win, lose, or draw. That's what I do, and I've been successful at it. And the reality is, is whenever I'm betting a race, I'm not betting it to break even, right? I'm like, either go big or go home. Amen. That's it. Amen. Amen to that. Roger, uh, with all this lockdown and everything, I'm, I'm sure you've probably been only been able to play tournaments online, correct? Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been anything live, uh, yeah, so. What are you looking forward to? Online. What are you looking forward to next? Well, I'm hoping Monmouth is supposed to open, because I live, like, you know, within walking distance of it, really. It's a couple miles away. Uh, the Pick Your Prize Challenge, hopefully they'll have it this summer. Yeah, we'll see. 
Uh, looking forward to the Breeders' Cup, too, obviously. And hopefully With I'll get to see you yeah. when you come out. Yeah, yeah, we were supposed to be together in April, if you remember. Yeah. And then all this shit happened, but, yeah, hopefully it'll all come back. But, yeah, listen, I love the contest. I just love the game. and Hopefully it stays around for a while, you know. It does have a lot of issues. The one, the one interesting thing with all this shutdown and stuff has shown us is that there's way too many racetracks running against each other. Plain and simple. We need to consolidate, and that's a great yeah, conversation. Really I'm going to have you back on, coming up towards right. the Breeders' Cup. I'm going to get you back on, and uh, we're going to talk about this as we go in the last 45 seconds. Roger, if people want to keep up with you, they keep up with you through the NHC Tour online, or do you have your own site? Yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, I don't do Twitter or anything anymore. I, I did for a while, and then I had a little security issue, so I kind of bagged everything. So. <laughs> I don't blame you. I do not blame yeah. you. Roger, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on. And um, let's go get them. Let's go play this weekend, this week. Uh, Absolutely. All right. Have a great day. Roger. Yeah, you too, man. Take care. Thank you. Thanks Thank you, so Roger, much. for some great information handicapping. Roger Chettina, a great handicapper and a, and a good racing fan. We'll talk to you soon.